to see what's special about each ordinary moment is already a good practice in and of itself. Each moment has its own shape, its own quality, its own length, its own texture, its color, its sound, its weight, its scent. And then the next moment is exactly the same in its own way. One of the things that people describe as Zen sickness is looking for something extraordinary or thinking that you found something extraordinary that kind of you know, lays everything else in place. That's the, that's the attraction and the seduction. How you take each step is uh, more significant than whether you have a particular one-moment life-changing experience. Zen Master Jokum, Ken Cassell, began studying with Zen Master Sung San in 1975. He received Inca, or permission to teach, in 1996, and transmission in 2017. Zen Master Jokum is a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist specializing in infant and early childhood mental health. He is a guiding teacher for the New Haven Zen Center, Kwa Um Sa Orlando Zen Center, Gateless Gate Zen Center in Gainesville, Florida, and Cypress Tree Zen Center in Tallahassee, Florida, Ten Directions Zen Community in Chicago, and the Hermitage of Beneficence in McHenry, Illinois. He also teaches at the Choge International Zen Center of New York. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We are launching a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition, and listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month for only $7 by using the promo code SBB, just like Sit, Breathe, Bow, when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. So Zen Master Jokum, I recently heard you speak this summer uh, about life at the Providence Zen Center when it was uh, first starting. And in my mind, I had always had you as this uh, New York City guy. Uh, I don't know really where that came from, but that's just always where I had you in my mind. But you were really there in the early days of the founding of that community, it sounded like. And I'm wondering... What brought you into that community, how you found your way there, what it was that, that hooked you into the practice, and, and why you stayed? Uh, thanks, Ian. Thanks for the opportunity and the work you do with this. Um, that particular track, and I think my life in general, falls under the phrase that's used in a lot of the ancient teachings, I was blown by the wind of karma to such and such a place. Uh, and somehow I've learned how to flow with that wind. Uh, I developed an interest in Zen specifically uh, probably my freshman year in college. Uh, Roshi Philip Kaplow came uh, and gave a talk and a workshop, and I kind of picked it up on my own from there for a long time. 
in my senior year in college, I spent three weeks at the San Francisco Zen Center at their main temple in San Francisco and at um, Green Gulch Farm. Uh, so one week, one week, and one week at San Francisco Green Gulch and then back at San Francisco. So I had a very strong interest in practicing in a residential community uh, by that time. And a friend of mine at college was from Providence and told me about the Zen Center in Providence. Logistically, that was the most workable thing for me. Uh, I showed up at the Zen Center uh, one day and I knocked at the door and nobody was there, but the door was open. So I wandered around, looked inside <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a Dharma thief. Yeah. And, uh, I found the door to the dorm room. It was in a it was in a refurbished funeral home at the corner of Hope Street and Wickenden in Providence. Uh, across the street was uh, a fish market and uh, Faria's Portuguese bread bakery and a uh, pharmacy. And diagonally across the street was um, a man who Bobby Rhodes would remember his name better. I can't recall it offhand, but he was a retired Irish cop. And he was a big supporter of the Zen Center because everybody was outside working hard on the building. And he had a deep respect for hard work. So he told the neighbors, these guys are good. Don't bother them. Anyway, I went into the Dharma room. I had been used to Dharma rooms that were constructed in the Japanese highly kind of austere and ascetic tradition with wood and tatami mats and everything exactly so. And this Dharma room had a deep blue rug, uh, multicolored square uh, sitting mats that weren't very thick, uh, rectangular cushions uh, interspersed with some zafus, a rainbow curtain on the altar, a Buddha and a, a taka behind the altar. Uh, and my first thought was these people don't know what they're doing. And my second thought was, uh, any place you go, you're going to find something you don't like, so why don't you stick around and find out what's here? And somehow that kept me connected. I eventually did make connections with the Zen Center and with Zen Master Sung San, and as uh, typical for somebody that age, this was 1974, I uh, didn't move until 1975. So I stepped into a flow of something that was already underway, uh, and at that particular point in time, Desansanim was spending three months on the East Coast traveling among the four East Coast centers, and then three months on the West Coast traveling between Berkeley, uh, primarily Los Angeles, and then other places he got invited, which eventually uh, increased to places including Kansas and other places in the Midwest and, and America. But he invariably would spend three weeks in uh, three months on the East Coast, and at that time, most of his time in Providence. So I was going along with something that was already strong and well-established. Well, you say that, but, and I say this with all deferential respect, but I mean, he only came to America like a year prior to that or something. Well, like, 1972. So, so a couple really of years. three years. Uh, yeah. And things, you know, if, if you get a flow going, and yeah. people have a deep commitment, and certainly the people there had a deep commitment. At that particular time, the people who were living there, that was that was their primary choice in life. Nobody nobody really, um, you know, we're a bunch of ex as I'm sure a lot of people have said. Uh, their primary commitment was to living the flow of the life of the Zen Center, uh, and everybody worked, but the work 
uh, was to be able to support their residency at the Zen Center. At that particular time, the people who were living in the Zen Center weren't exploring other kinds of careers. And so that, that allowed for a particularly strong commitment so that uh, there was a regular flow of, of week-long retreats, actually, for a long time, every month, uh, daily morning and evening practice, work periods on Saturday and Sunday, extended practice on Saturday evening, uh, introductory talks on Sunday night, uh, a little bit of extra chanting practice on Sunday night. So uh, I felt that I was among people who were very strongly committed, which is which is where I wanted to be because I knew of my own uh, need to uh, get that kind of external support. You know, I kind of have always had this question of, because, you know, I never met Zen Master Sung Son, and I was always curious about, I just imagine him as being this very charismatic person because I know that he didn't speak English very well. And yet here you have all of these people who are really dedicated to the practice, very dedicated to the teaching that he was offering at any rate. And I'm wondering if there was something that really stood out to you about why him? Why not go back to San Francisco? Why not go down to LA to study with uh, Mayuzumi Roshi? Why not, uh, or go up to Rochester and study with Philip Kaplow? Like, why him? Well, clearly, he he's able. He was able to transmit the core of the practice and was able to transmit the vehicle that transmits the core. So, in terms of teaching stories, in terms of uh, you know the the traditional teachings, he was a good vehicle for that. Uh, he certainly was the genuine article as far as I could tell. Uh, you know, there wasn't anything about his character or his conduct that, that left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, he was welcoming. He was supportive. He was very strong. He, he encouraged people very strongly to practice. Uh, and he knew how to treat me in terms of giving me enough encouragement, enough pokes, but not pushing too hard. I think he probably felt that I was the kind of person who if you push too hard, that would have ended it. So, uh, and I think maybe he recognized that I myself wanted to do this so you didn't have to push me too hard. What do you think it was about you that caused this great question to really sort of manifest in the, in such a way where you were really ready to just give yourself to a community to study that. Uh, you're giving me more credit than I would have deserved. <laughs> well, okay. I don't think I had any particularly outstanding personal characteristics uh, that made me substantially different from other people who decided to live in uh, practice communities at that time. Mm-hmm. It, 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 was, it was the thing I was most interested in. Right. And, and I think that's probably the fairest way to say it. Uh, I, had a, I had a similar interest in anti-war efforts. I almost went to work for American Friends Service Committee. I probably would have given myself to that in a similar way. But I think if you consider if somebody decides to go to med school or law school or study how to be a carpenter or an artist, uh, that's what they do. And, and they commit themselves to that and they decide not to do other things. And uh, something about how I engaged in the Zen Center had that quality without, uh, you know, the other things I mentioned involve uh, 
some kind of skill building or effort toward a particular kind of outcome. And uh, this is more about immersion in a particular kind of life and maybe trusting that this kind of immersion and that kind of life uh, will help shape you in a particular way. Again, not how I would have said it then. But sort of going with that a little bit, now you are a teacher and you work with uh, students. How how do you engage with students now who uh, are looking for, for, you know, maybe they are sort of drawn to that, whatever that word awakening means to them, you know, or whatever the promise is, that the little golden ball that exists out there. Uh, they've come to you. They want something. They're not even sure maybe what it is. Um, how are you guiding them in that process now, having you know done this for 40 years? I, I can't teach somebody unless I become their student. And uh, I can't uh, study with them unless they let me learn from them. So we have to accept that they're my teacher. Uh, only Ian can teach me Ian. You're the best. You're the best teacher of Ian, Ian that I could possibly meet. Somebody else might have some other things to say that might shed some light, but in terms of the space that we occupy together, you're my guide. And so I have to see that well if I'm going to offer you anything. I have to know which way the stream flows. And everybody's stream flows a little bit differently, but everybody's stream returns to the ocean. And so. Uh, I have some training about the ocean, and I have some training about how streams flow, and so I want to see how does this stream flow in this place at this time so I can we can step into it together. Uh, everybody has a language that makes sense for them, and I try to see if I can find that language when I'm speaking. Uh, I might be, if somebody else were conducting the interview, I'd probably be phrasing this a little bit differently, but I have some sense about how we connect. Mm -hmm. And so... Part of what's going on is you're drawing out a certain set of words from me. And right. there are other ways to say it, but these are the words that come out now. Uh, that's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that um, I hope I voice experience as opposed to jargon or teaching phrases unless they touch on something that's about experience. So it's not that they have no use, but the use of speaking at all in this context of, of, of teaching Zen is to um, provide a context for the students to trust their own fundamental nature. And so the whole conversation is about that. Well, that is something that I, I do see sort of as a resonant theme uh, through your teaching or, you know, what you offer to people is this sort of cultivating a sense of real trust in the, the fundamental uh, nature of of you know who who you are or what this is um and i i've heard you say things uh like you know when you when you trust your fundamental nature then then something just activates by itself which which means you know life becomes clear when you when you really are in a state of trust then um you know the left foot follows the right foot in in such a way there's a science there's a science that uses the phrase emergent properties of systems. I wish you could remember which science it is. I think it's probably, I, I didn't invent the phrase, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it has to do with how, you know, ecosystems define themselves and sustain themselves. 
and are able to factor in things that enter into the system uh, given given time. And I think we we work the same way that if uh, you know there's an ancient saying if the root is if the root is strong the tree is strong. And so uh, I don't know what you're going to discover. In fact, you don't know what you're going to discover. But I know that I'm not going to discover it for you. Uh, we may discover it together, but when we've left each other, you'll do your own discovery. And so uh, cultivating trust in uh, making a space where that can happen allows everybody to discover how their individual talents can best manifest themselves. And how do you think that the practice does that, sort of cultivate the sense of trust? Uh, I, I, I wish I could say, but I could make something up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or in your in your experience, how has that happened? How has how has the trust appeared for you? Well, okay, and anything more is stepping on it. But let me step mm-hmm. on it. Okay, bit. sure. Um, <laughs> we, we share space together. Yes, we we make the space together that we share, and by sharing the space, we make it together, and we learn how to live in it well. Right, so we're we're co shaping we're co shaping the space we live in. That, to me, that's true of, of all sentient beings. You know, two, two butterflies make a space in the air or they make a space with the flower and they share the space together. Uh, so we do that too. We do that in many, many forms. And I think we have a, a well-formed practice in the sense that the spaces we create in formal practice are um, basic forms of things we encounter anyway, right? Entering, leaving, talking being still, making noise, uh, moving around. Uh, You know, we do that anyway. So if we do those things attentively and well, we learn something about how to live in the space that we occupy, and then we learn something about occupying that space together with other beings. And that's a portable talent, right? If If you do that... We create we create practice because that's the easiest place to do it. Even when it feels hard on the retreat, you're in a community of like-minded people who want to do the same thing and will support you because the effort is the same. And you're not necessarily going to encounter people outside of the dorm room who have who have that uh, conscious intention. Right. And I think I think on some level we're wired to have that intention, but things distract us from it. So if you recognize what that intention looks like among uh, your, your, your Zen friends, if it will, there's a, uh, what's it, um, Doban is a, is a Korean expression for somebody walking the path with you, like a path friend. So, you know, those of us who have found a practice home have path friends in that home. And one thing about that kind of intimacy is it teaches you something about being human and you take that something about being human and you use it with other people who haven't necessarily made the commitment to cultivate that, but they can see it in you. And, and you can see it in them because we practice seeing each other's mind light. So if I practice seeing your mind light and following that, I learn something about people's mind light in general. And then somebody I bump into someplace, they have mind light too. Uh, if I, if I know how to see that kind of thing, it shines in a particular way for them. I recognize something, and I think all of us do. I think that's part of, part of what flows out of the dorm room into our daily life is that kind of thing. 
Hmm. In a couple of different places, you've talked about the um, the Bodhisattva vow, or the first the first part of the Bodhisattva vow, right? We the the way we say it in in our school is uh, you know uh, sentient beings are numberless. Uh, we vow to save them all. Hmm. But then you had you wrote this uh, piece, or maybe it was part of a talk that you'd given, and you um, you you commented on Roshi Baker from the San Francisco Zen Center, who who translated it uh, or used a translation that was slightly different, which was "Being is without end. I vow to be with it." Mm-hmm. And I think there was the way you were saying it. Uh, was sometimes perhaps we get a little confused when we say sentient beings are numberless. We vow to save them all. Um, like maybe we're doing something, or we're, or we're, we're. Uh, <laughs> you know, we end up I, with I, this. I can I can tell you the root of that for me. Sure. Yeah. Please. Uh, it, it's from uh, chapter six on repentance in the Platform Sutra. Mm. Uh, I, I really appreciate the translation that Dequansinim and Dequansinim did. And for those listeners, it's 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 available in various places online. I'm not sure where. I'll post it on the on the in the show notes. The, the whole sutra is beautiful. I was reading through the platform sutra to find something very specific as editor of primary points. Somebody had made a quotation and I thought they had misattributed it to somebody else. And I thought, oh, it's in the Platform Sutra. Let me find it. So I'm, I'm going through the chapters really quickly to find that one thing. And when I got to chapter six, after about five pages, I realized I stopped going fast and I started reading slow. I thought, wow, this, this is like all of Buddhism is in this chapter. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point in the chapter, uh, he says something along these lines that, uh, the vow to save all beings from suffering doesn't mean I, Huineng, save you, all sentient beings. It means the sentient beings, in my mind, of their own accord, return to their fundamental nature. That's that's the feeling. It's not the exact words, but it, it's it's the same, right? So the the sense that uh, water, you know, water returns to water. Right, um, suggests a certain kind of naturalness and trust, and that the vow is not to do something, but maybe to see something or to live something. And it doesn't have the same flavor of a subject doing a verb to an object. Right? right. It has some. It has something about. It has something of the flavor that something is already inherently connected and that in the right kind of space, that connection emerges. And so saving, you save something because it's valuable to you, right? You might also say preserve or honor or care for. So things that have to do with trusting that connection again, I think allows me anyway to be in the position of a student of all that. And that if something emerges that's propitious and useful, it's because uh, the shape of the circumstances makes a certain kind of sense to me. So I I enter that shape. And 
it's less important how you say it and more important to see for yourself what the heart of that means. And I, I can't tell Ian how to see the heart of it for Ian. I, I can say how I see it. So one of my favorite stories I've heard you tell, and and it was funny, like, again, doing the research for the podcast, I heard my own voice because I was I was at this Dharma talk where I heard you say it, and, and I had just had this experience, and um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but you had, you were, I don't know, I think you were on like 125th Street. No, no, get the street right, 161st, 161st. <laughs> so you do know the story. I'm the, so this you is, were on 164th. This is, this is not Manhattan. This is the Bronx. Please. Right. This is, oh, it's up in the Bronx. Right. So you were in the Bronx and there were three guys about to have a fight on the street. Right. Two guys were yelling at one guy. Uh-huh. And you walked up to them. Uh, you were almost walked by, as I'm remembering the story. You almost walked by. Okay. And then Are you, you were like, me to tell the story? Or you're asking me to relate to <laughs> your recounting of the story after you tell it. <laughs> I, how about you tell the story? That's probably okay. a better way to do it. <laughs> okay. First of all, don't try this at home. Mm -hmm. um, because it's not something you can plan. And I think if something had been a little different, it wouldn't have happened that way. So, uh, but it's, in some way, I think it talks about the portability of the Dharma. Uh, and I also want to say that that's a terrible way, way to say it, but that's how I say it. So there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're a Zen master. You can do what you want now. Well, you've got to call it something. Yeah. Uh, I, I was coming out of the bank and I was walking back home. And as I walked past the food stand, there were... Uh, three guys, two black guys and a Puerto Rican guy, which in terms of ethnic things in the Bronx, that makes a difference. Yeah. Right. And the Puerto Rican guy was down in the martial arts stance. I have no idea. I don't know martial arts particularly, but he had that kind of thing going on. Right. And then one of the black guys was in a boxing stance and the other guy was uh, behind him in the I've got your back stance, uh, meaning he's not going to get involved, but you go ahead. And so uh, the boxer and his friend were trading epithets with the other guy and it was escalating. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just go home. And then I, I kind of paused for a second. I looked at the fruit vendor. He looked worried. Uh, and these guys looked like maybe they meant it. And it's hard. It, it's hard to tell because I don't, I don't get involved in this stuff. So I don't, I don't know. Like, how do you read somebody's posturing? Uh, you know, you feel it. So, I was standing close to them anyway as I walked by. They didn't bother the passersby. So I turned around and I looked at all three of them and I said, can I get you a cup of coffee? I had no idea. Right. And uh, so two, crazy. Guys, <laughs> two black guys immediately said, sure, we'd like some coffee. But that gave permission to the karate guy to escalate because now – I've diverted their attention, so here's an opportunity for him. So he starts he starts uh, upping the ante, and they're now looking at me and looking at him and looking at me and looking at him, and they're willing to get back into it. So I say to him, would you like a cup of coffee? And he thinks, yeah. I said, okay, let's go to McDonald's and get it. And so he takes me up on the offer, and then the other two guys start to withdraw because you know, you're not going to get all three of them to have a cup of coffee and have a discussion group, but it, it provided something. And as they're parting from each other, 
they're hurling epithets back and forth about what they would have done to each other if the white guy hadn't shown up. <laughs> You're lucky he showed up. I would have really, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but that that subsided. And then we, we went to get coffee. And I asked him, how's your family? And this was like a little while after the storm. So he said they, they, they were okay. They weren't from the part of the island that got badly hit. And then at a certain point, he says that his father's or his grandfather's nickname was Coffee. And so for him, the fact that I offered to buy him coffee had some cosmic meaning that he was trying to, he was trying to like pierce the cosmic meaning of this. And I didn't know what it was either, <laughs> but somehow that made us closer. We talked a little bit. Uh, we said a little bit about our lives. They bought him the coffee and I left. And what was so, what I loved about when I first heard you tell that story is I had, I was walking over to the Cambridge Zen Center and I was tired, but I, mm. wanted, I wanted to hear your Dharma talk. And so I stopped at Abonpan to get a cup of coffee. And as I walked outside of Abonpan, there were two guys about to fight. And one of them had a brick. And he was going to smash yeah. this guy with a yeah. brick. And there were like 20 people around. And we were all staring there watching. And it, this, this sort of the coffee shop was right behind me. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that buy a cup of coffee is the answer to everything, but that that story <laughs> of like really taking the shape and understanding the shape of the moment, I was just so struck because at that in that moment for me, I didn't know what to do. And ultimately I remember that, yeah. I, I remember sharing with you that maybe you did what there was to do because the shape of that moment wasn't the shape of my Bronx moment. And the shape of that moment had 20 bystanders encircling somebody, including you, briefly. Right. And you don't know what happened because you left, but it may well be that the 20 bystanders helped the brick not leave the man's hand. Right. And that might have, you know, who knows that that wasn't the thing to do. And I think part of, you know, part of uh, temperament and circumstances and skillful means is that you bring the moment to the moment. You don't bring uh, a set of strategies necessarily. Right. And I, I think for me anyways, that, you know, the, the reason behind my desire to study and, and sort of give myself to the way, right, is not, I don't have any sort of pie in the sky, like whatever enlightenment means, but I really do cherish the idea of skillful means of, okay, this, this, moment has presented itself and i would i would like to know what to do to be the most helpful in this you know in this particular moment and i guess i do have faith that the practice will bring me there but i was just so struck by <laughs> you telling that story and me being in that moment and being like shit <laughs> let, 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 let's be let's be careful right I'm not wandering the Bronx finding right. <laughs> like this 24 hours a day right. or looking for moments like that 24 hours a day too. Right. And I've certainly encountered moments where I had no idea what to do and, right. you know, or I'd stumble and do something stupid. So it's more engaging to tell a story about something that connected and had an interesting outcome than it is to tell a story about standing there looking like an idiot, not knowing what to do. Although those are good stories too, if you tell them well. Right. Uh, but I think it also does I, I, give us I, I, faith. Well, yeah, that's that's the reason for those kinds of stories. Right. Uh, two two things I think. Um, 
I think appreciation of, of what we would call ordinary is, is a very useful practice and maybe particularly for the West, although uh, that's very pretentious of me because it's not like I have a deep apprehension of the East and the West. Um, but as an antidote to looking for something special, to see what's special about each ordinary moment is already a good practice in and of itself. Uh, you know, I often tell beginners in the first interview that each moment has its own shape, its own quality, its own length, its own texture, its color, its sound, its weight, its scent, its luster. And then the next moment is exactly the same in its own way. You know, your headphones aren't my headphones, mm -hmm. right? And yet they both do that kind of thing. So to see that is to be guided well by the moment before you. And I think is, is to live in the middle of everyday mind is Zen mind. Uh, I heard an interview of a poet, can't remember who, uh, who the, the interviewer was commenting about how her poetry was so much about ordinary moments in her life. And she said, well, my life is a string of ordinary moments, one after the other. What else would I write about? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things that people describe as Zen sickness is looking for something extraordinary or thinking that you found something extraordinary that kind of, you know, lays everything else in place. That's the, that's the attraction and the seduction. Uh, it, it's an attraction when you see what that attraction is about. It's a seduction if you're looking for some particular event, some particular moment, some particular explosion, some particular state of mind. Uh, you know, those may or may not happen, but how you take each step is uh, more significant than whether you have a particular, uh, you know, one moment life-changing experience. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zen Master Jokum encouraging and helpful for your practice. If you're interested in learning more, there are several videos on YouTube where he gives Dharma talks and answers questions. And if you'd like to find his retreat schedule, I've posted all of the links in the show notes to the sanghas where he teaches. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of the Zen study group for only $7 when using the promo code SBB, like Sit, Breathe, Bow, SBB. The study group offers a close reading of sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup, and don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week.